Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey everyone, hope you're well. Just a very, very quick message before we jump into the show. I have been experimenting with some new microphones recently, and unfortunately the audio recorder that I used to record this episode and the one next week uh, was not quite as good as the one I've been using previously. This is something I'm just experimenting with and trying to uh, make it better for you, the listener. So uh, that doesn't make this episode not worth listening to. It's still very much, uh, you can hear what's being said and you can get some value from it. But I just thought I'd flag that because I will be improving it in the future. Uh, yeah, so without further ado, enjoy the show. Episode 5 of Ricky Richards Represents. I don't see any other any alternative and what you do is to try and do something which is unique. I think that's the only way you make your mark. Hello everyone and welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where we talk to leading figures of creativity and innovation. Today I'm talking to experimental photographer Edmund Fraser about his insights after working in the photography industry and his opinions about forming your own photographic voice. Let's do it. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. Today I'm joined by Edmund Fraser. A photographer, I kind of look at him as also a bit of an artist and experimental photography. Um, you know, he does lots of interesting things, but I guess he would be able to describe it better than I can. So maybe if I pass you over, Ed, could you explain who you are and what it is you do? Um, I mean, my traditional background was, uh, and it still is, uh, stills photography. It's something that I, you know, got really into uh, as a younger adult. Um, and I've kind of taken it and now I'm still using photography as a medium but I'm looking at more kind of interactive installations, web interactive, uh, uh, standard motion, um, just trying to expand kind of the possibilities of the, uh, the medium really. More to photography in the beginning as, as opposed to anything else? I didn't really get into it until I was about 18. It was something that kind of occurred to me then as something when I, you know, when I was abroad I used to take pictures of surfers on the beach and uh, sell them to them, actually. So a purely commercial kind of beginning. But then I kind of, I started using it as a kind of access tool um, to, I was obsessed with live music and I hadn't had much access to it as a, as a kind of teenager. So I used to, I used to live in Bethnal Green and use in East London and I used the kind of photo passes as an 18 year old as a kind of way of kind of getting in and kind of having access to a whole kind of cultural experience that I wouldn't have had, I wasn't used to. 
Um, and I kind of carried on with that kind of use as photography as a kind of experience, taking it into something uh, more of creating something as opposed to literally recording something. So do you think that influenced you, like your, the style you have now, those early experiences with it? or Well, I mean, everything that you kind of, is it, is it, is a sum, it, a sum of those, it's a sum of those parts, yeah. Exactly, I guess, yeah. Okay. Um, Going back to another question. When I look at your work at the moment, I get the sense that there's an element that you find beauty and imperfection to a certain degree. Uh, and the reason I think that is because your pictures aren't your stereotypical glossy mag perfect depiction of a girl or a boy. Why is that? And I guess what's your philosophical outlook on the work that you do? Um, I think, I mean, the concept of beauty, I mean, again, that's a very wide-ranging question. I'm not trying to make a statement on the work that I do. Um, it's just people who you find interesting, things that you find exciting. I think the whole kind of glossy uh, form of beauty and perfection is, you know, it's almost very kind of 1980s in that, in that sense. It's not what people look at today. You know, authenticity, it's quite almost, it's almost kind of a quite hipster language in that sense, or perceived as such. But some form of kind of relating to your subject and finding something identifiable and kind of, you know, everyone, people, people accept now that everyone's a bit of a weirdo. And so when you kind of can relate to those two things together, that I think people find beautiful by being found understood and identifiable. So, so do think, you look for particular subjects that have these depictions of I, look, I, I definitely look for people that I find interesting and people that I think I'll learn something off. I don't, I don't like to kind of approach a subject with a kind of, I know what they're about. I'd like to approach every single shoot or every project that, as a kind of learning experience. And it, it, I'm fortunate to work with people who allow me to kind of learn from projects. And when you say, I want to work with someone that you learn from, on my perception of what happens is you bring someone in, you tell them to have particular poses, no, no, I don't do that at all. Like, not at all. It's very much like I think. I think the role of if you're looking at photography, for example, where it's so much more. You, you are literally capturing something as it is. It's not. You're not painting. It's, it's very different. My personal opinion on that is that you create the kind of set, and you maybe create the energy, and that's fine. And then that person, the, the rest of it is a recording of the relationship between you and that person. But you're not. Well, the moment you start asking people to kind of do specific things and recreate something i mean what's the point of doing photography at that point do that's the advantage that it has over things like painting or anything like that is that that's a more kind of objective recording of who they are so this is a a thing then because in order they, they if you're looking at say portrait photography you're looking to create a depiction of that individual through a photograph which might be a mannerism the a, a slight element of their f face or whatever it may be the environment they're in when you're dealing with a model, you might not necessarily know them for that long. So are you trying to make an assumption? Are you trying to depict? Uh, no, I'm not, not overanalyzing that far. I mean, if you're looking at kind of pure kind of uh, more kind of fashion-based material, I think the work is a reflection to some extent of who you are in the room at that time. And if you're being you know super boring and saying hold your hand up, the person looks nervous and it shows. Whereas if you're kind of if you're fun and you're happy and then they're fun and they're happy and that's what you do. It's a much more kind of fluid way of working than, say, kind of drawing or even graphic design in that sense, where you know what you want and you do it and you make it happen. I think when you have that perspective on something like photography, you'll lose, you'll lose what the other person has to give you, if that makes sense. You can't treat your subjects as, you know, as a canvas of what you want. You have to treat them as someone who gives something back to you, and you have to allow them to do that, but within... So if someone, some if someone genuinely has a nervous energy, do you embrace that? Yeah, 100%. Well, that's why you cast them. 
Like, why wouldn't you cast them like that? Because it's super interesting. Like, we had some guys the other day, we had the street casting agency, uh, Lord, who have super interesting people. And some of them girls were kind of trying a bit hard to be kind of super, super fashiony. It was like, no, man, just chill, because, like, you're interesting, you're, you're cool people, just be yourself. When you say interesting, is that a abnormality of the, like, facial features? Or, like, why is That's it? That's a good question, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who look like, a bit weird, I guess. Like someone who looks like an individual. I mean, it's all about individualism now, I think. Like, it's about having someone that people feel comfortable to say this person is... You know, there was a guy, like skinny guy, with a kind of really small, kind of rubbish moustache, do you know what I mean? But it kind of... You could identify with that, because I remember being skinny with a fucking rubbish moustache and trying to grow out. <laughs> I mean, you have this kind of guy, and it's interesting. Like, it's not... You don't need, like, a... I, th- I find that more interesting than this huge, chiselled Adonis kind of saying, you know, I am man. Like, what's, what's that? So do you think that our perceptions of masculinity are being changed in our current culture? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a really big question. Not something that I'm qualified to answer, but, you know, in terms of... I think feminism has changed that in terms of saying men don't have to be men. Do you see what I mean? That's definitely, you know, in constant flux. At the moment, especially in urban centres. I think maybe not in so much other places, but... And why people? People are unpredictable. I, I struggle with still life. I've shot still life before, and I find it there's no magic to what you what you achieve. I find it when you shoot people, it's you kind of shoot it. You forget you forget about doing. You just kind of really enjoy the shooting of it. You enjoy the moment of what you do, and then you look at the stuff later, and you find some stuff in there that you you didn't expect to have. It was all because what is coming back to the idea of that person giving you something that you didn't expect. Do you see what I mean? Because you're not they're not a canvas. They're they're a person who you're in a relationship with them for when you do that shoot. Um, and it's unpredictable and it's exciting and there's a kind of magic to it. And I don't think there's a magic to things like still life and to all landscapes. So what is your um, your approach to actually taking a photograph? Do you take multiple... Do you have the approach of, I'm going to take loads and then cherry pick? Or do you try and be very considered with every shot? I think that's changed over time in the sense that when I started, it was very much like, I'm going to take 5,000 and really go for it. Uh, now I'm a bit more measured. I'm a bit more confident with what and how many I've taken. I take less now, but at the same time... Do you cherry-pick your shots now, or uh, do you still have an approach of having... I still, I still believe in creating the space with the person and not overthink, not kind of looking at every single shot as it comes through, just kind of shoot it, enjoy what you're doing, try and create a moment, try and create something exciting, and then record that, and then, and then have a look back at it later. So but you... it probably takes me less time to get there than it used to, and it depends on the person you're shooting. Like Some people are you have to work really hard with and some people you take 10 pictures and you know it's still good uh, okay so a bunch of questions have come out of that first thing what makes a good model is it just the, the relaxed nature of them the fact that they can they can be in the well, moment someone who has something to offer someone who's exciting someone who like, what is exciting you know, I'm... from the days when you first started to now what are the things that have changed in your work that you can identify like I've taken X number of good shots of a you know, because of certain qualities of those photographs that I don't necessarily need to... I think I display a lot of their shots. Um, I think it's almost what you show as opposed to what you take. I remember when I started, I'd take, uh, you know, 100 shots, and I think 80 of them were good, because I didn't understand the concept of how to sell a kind of story. Whereas now, you'll take 100 and you'll put three up. And it's hard to get down to those three. It's hard to throw things away. But it's understanding why, how to throw things away, I think, is actually really important. We can talk about taking 100 photos now or 1,000 photos or however many we want due to digital technology. 
like obviously there's a democratization of the medium now that people can access equipment but do you think there's any other effects of people having access to cameras very readily and easily it's changed the game in terms of how people have access to making films i think the industry has in a way got less mobile for example fashion photography was a concept in the 1960s that was well known for propelling working class boys to something and now fashion photography is looked at i think validly to be partners with you as a slightly privileged occupation before you get into work for brands etc 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 i think whilst equipment has enabled a lot of people to enter at a low at a, at a very low level it has caused issues within the industry of how easy it is to to enter the economy of it see that really surprises me because the i mean this might just be my culture influence because of the bubble that i'm in but i yeah. see a lot of people put kind of streetwear and street culture and hipster culture in this you know uh, it's got its own platform especially within you say urban centres places like Mm. London you'd assume that that means that the photographs are coming from the people where the the culture's been emerging from and that they'd be the ones to capitalise you think so but I think I think it just takes longer now to get paid as a young photographer I think when you started it was a very clear route you assist or you do this and then you because the equipment is, is expensive, you don't you didn't expect to go years without being paid. Whereas now, because it's so cheap, there's so much, so many people in the market. The one advantage that, that many people have is the ability to stick it out for long enough without being paid until they get paid. So it's cash and that's flow. a big that that's the big difference. Do you see what I mean? Right. Because it's so accessible. Because there's there's just so many people in the market now. You can buy a quality level DSLR for five hundred quid. So what do you think separates the people that... Is it literally that that you think separates people? Assuming that people... No, it's more of a general, a general viewpoint, the socioeconomic of it. But the people that do well, I think, do well regardless. Do you see what I mean? I just think there's a lot of people entering the market. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of brilliant talent in it. Yeah. But it's just, it's certainly more competitive than it was. Going back a, li- a couple of steps, so we were talking about the, the, you were talking about how you don't even necessarily look at your photographs as you're taking them, you're capturing the moment with this individual yeah. and you're taking photo, uh, shots. Put that into a client scenario where they have uh, very particular needs, wants, poses, the art director's done it this way and that way so he knows exactly what he wants. That's a different skill set again. Are you able to oh, adapt? Completely change the game, yeah, I agree with you on that. I think if you're dealing with a commercial client, there's a degree of pushback you have to get a degree to kind of validate why you are a skilled individual in that situation. But at the same time, you certainly need to now validate every step that you do. In the sense, you can't shoot 10 rolls of film, you know, kind of say it's all good and then go from there. You, know, you have to involve people in that process. I think in general, it does weaken the creative output in general. Like not maybe necessary to me, but like in general. My difference is that a lot of the stuff I do is... Uh, I do a lot of the, the bullet time stuff, so it can't be brought necessarily straight to the screen. Which brings straight into my next question. So um, you decide to do a lot of experimental photography. You're kind of pushing the bounds a little bit. Do you maybe explain what is you, you're doing? Well, it's with, it's with complete reference, in a sense, to what your previous point was, which is the market. was. It's, it's, it wasn't done pure. It was done on also in terms of what I found interesting, but it was also, there was also a calculated element to it, which was the market is flooded, the technology kind of uh, entry bar has been completely lowered what are you going to do to make something interesting that's exciting that allows you to you know to do what you want to do that has that separates you 
It's got commercial um, value. That's different. Exactly. So we, you know, we, I started out doing the, these Quadra lens uh, kind of 3D cameras from the 80s that Nord bought. There's a warehouse in LA with thousands of them. Um, so I started out with them. They'd create full frame GIFs. You just they kind of, you just layered them and you turned them into GIFs. And I thought that was really exciting. I'd not really seen anything quite like that at the time. And it was in the, you know, the time of Tumblr and GIFs. It was all super exciting to do something in motion. And, you know, web was coming up. And that was. And you were looking at kind of less traditional formats of how you could approach the industry in terms of going straight to the standard editorial kind of outputs. Um, so what I did from there is I took, I bought another five of these ridiculous four-lens cameras and turned it into one, took them all apart, and turned it into one 35mm film big camera. It took about half an hour to take a picture. And... Um, it worked. It just didn't really work that well. It was cool. It was artsy. Because, you, you know, you have um, four type 20, 24 lenses, you know, in a box in a blackout room. It looked really interesting, but it wasn't really commercially viable. So I decided to invest in the, the DSLR setup. So I had 10 1100Ds and linked together with audio wire, which sort of triggered them, surprisingly. One I found interesting in, in terms of how it looked. Every time you came out, you were always fascinated, but you had something different. But on, on, a, on literally a more calculated level it seemed like a, a way in that gave you something that other people couldn't replicate in that sense and was accessible but it, it did cause me problems in the sense that when you started to approach the traditional media outlets like print magazines you, you'd have problem, you know trying to explain to people they get more reach and more exposure on a web platform it just doesn't fly and it's starting to fly it start people are starting to understand that when you have a good piece of Instagram content or you have a good video that goes on Vimeo and then Facebook and then everyone shares, it's way better than a, a four-page spread, spread and vogue. Like, I mean, it's crazy how long people have taken to catch on to that because the <laughs> whole industry is supported by the advertising and kind of the traditional structures of that. And they're starting, they're starting. I wouldn't say they're, gonna, they're falling apart, but they're definitely readjusting sure. to the new media kind of angle. But that's taking years. I started doing this three four years ago and it's taken time the, the bullet time kind of photography where there's an element of motion in it that's almost like your calling card at the moment it is but you've been yeah. doing this for uh, quite a while <laughs> are you bordering on this point where uh, you know you want to start trying to do something new just as the technology is starting to oh no I'm bored as hell with it like it's, it's um, I'm not bored with it it's still exciting to me it's still something that I'm but I'm past the stage of doing it for uh, kind of new exploratory usage. It's in the stage now where, which has been good in terms of commercial usage, and people are excited to use it because I think the commercial kind of outlet is a few years behind the kind of yeah. artistic outlet, and that's fine. So it's monetizing now, and it's fantastic. It you know, works for me. So now it means I can invest in new in new projects, but I'm certainly not looking forward at. So using at that as your bankroll, and then looking. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I'm still applying it to different different mediums and different outlets, yeah. but. No, I'm not going to stick with that. I think it's worth uh, just touching on the history of how you've tried to how you tried to turn that effectively into its own product. So you started a platform with John Luca, is that correct? John Luca Trombetta, which was called Hoopla, and uh, that was effectively a code-based version of the bullet time uh, photography that allowed you to generate the the hoops. Yes and no. It was more of a uh, it turned uh, video into interactive video. Um, but it was originally aimed around the kind of 3D kind of bullet time images and enabling you to control it with your with your mouse cursor. So, um, so you weren't generating images, you were simply feeding through existing content and allowing it to be interactive. So this, I mean, 
<clears throat> we met up quite early. Well, not that you'd already been on this for quite a while, um, but we'd met up because we were you were trying to push this into the advertising yeah. space potentially. And I saw a real opportunity with it because it was as you were interacting with this motion photography, motion video, however you however you want to say it. It allowed you to do reveals or interesting concepts that were otherwise unable to be done through traditional photography or other formats that currently pre-existed. And then now, you know, we experimented with that. We did some stuff for Absolute. You took some photographs yeah. and... Um, that, General Electric. General Electric. Who else did we do stuff with? Vice. Vice, lots of advice. Um, Trendy. And that subsequently, just as a... a, a like a, a background story on this is there's another group of people that have created a very similar platform that have taken the name of Polaroid and they've actually got a, I think believe they've got venture capital and they've built a team around it trying to develop this in a nostalgic way that kind of pulls from the brand of Polaroid but that just goes to show how you were on this many years prior to it kind of coming into there's a, there's a difference between an idea and the execution within a much larger industry Sure. I mean, the issue we had with uh, Hoopla, which became Super Hoop, which was it was still it, it was more of a in my head when I started it because I had no experience in running or being involved with a tech company or a startup. You know. It was an experiment in my head in how people choose to interact with and engage with content. It kind of moved into a service and all these things, which you know to some extent worked and to some extent didn't. But we were confronted with realities within the industry, which was. One, we couldn't do a consumer-facing platform in the UK. It's not possible in terms of funding. People are not going to invest in the UK in a company that will monetize in 10 to 20 years' time. You have to do a business-facing platform in the UK. It won't. They won't. Investors in general, I don't want to make a rule for it, but investors in general will not jump for that. What the Polaroid app did was take it to, or they existed in, in, in America on the, on the West Coast, where they could take that funding to be a consumer-facing app. And it doesn't really matter how long it takes them to monetize, if that makes sense. As long as they get the user base up, that works for them. So this is also um, I've always found interesting about you, is you understand the tech space, which makes you very unique from a stereotypical photographer. I mean, it's not, it's not been a voluntary thing. It's more been because I was, I was just super interested in making these images that I did, the, the bullet time ones, interactive. And then I started working with John Luca on this platform. And then that was something that I got into for a couple of years, which I'm still very interested in. You know, am I the person to kind of run those kind of companies? No. But is it something <laughs> that I understand the language of? Yes. I think you'd be mad not to look at that kind of industry and be interested. I don't think, personally, as a kind of white, middle-class male, you have much to offer in terms of cultural kind of uh, interest. I think what you've got is technology. And if you, if you don't have that, then you're just ripping off other people. So really, uh, you know, to be able to say that from a, like looking at yourself, it's quite hard to, to make that call, but it's interesting you've said that. Maybe a relatively good transition. So something I wanted to touch on was kind of your background. And for someone, I mean, for the education I had, yours was very different. You went, you went to Eton. And uh, I'm just really interested to know what that's like, you know, for many people that don't get the opportunity. What's it like to go to um, it's a really interesting, it's hard to say because it's like asking someone who's been through a certain, something through an early stage of their life how it was because you don't understand how it was relative. But when you, what I can say is that it's the, only, it's the only school in the world where people have a pre-existing opinion on you based on specifically where you've been to school. School or 
you can say the same for university and stuff, right? You go like MIT, there's a lot of prerequisite beliefs you have about something. But you're moving that back several years to the age of 13 to 18. Yeah, so yeah, I don't, sure. I don't think, I, may, I might be wrong, I'd be happy to be correct on this, but I don't think there's any other secondary school of 13 to 18 in the world that people have a pre-existing opinion on you based on where you were at that time, Yeah, if that makes sense. So, yeah, there is a certain, you do, I do think you feel a certain awareness of people's opinions of you. And just because I literally have no idea, do you have to have some kind of prerequisite grade or is it mainly monetary? There was the concept of the, the people who got signed out at birth, etc. But the thing is, fundamentally, Eton is, the people that go there are not thick. Like, it's not a stupid kid's school. The comment, they have an exam, sorry, when you're 13, called common entrance. It's not easy. A lot of people fail. It's not, you don't come in there being felt with the feeling that you've walked in. So do you go there with the belief, unlike maybe many other secondary schools, that you need to work harder? Well, it's more like the, I think that's the big difference that I think a lot of people have brought up between private and non-private schools is that it's, in a sense, working hard and doing good work and kind of getting involved in that is an incredibly positive thing. Yeah, kind of, kind of, it's not, it's not, not, not like nerd chic, but it is a sense that kind of you, you being successful and being good at what you do is not, never something to be scorned on. And that is really, really powerful, I think, for a, for a kid to have to go through that because you're not, it's, it's hard to say because I don't have the relative experience. I don't want, I don't want to say you're not spoon-fed. You're, you're given the space to develop and the resources, the resources to develop, actually. Because uh, talking about the resources, like earlier you mentioned you studied sculpture. Uh, that's not something amazing like, the resources are unreal and you don't realize it at that age it's, it's phenomenal like it's almost regrettable so what are the what other things were there that you wouldn't see in a you know typical state-run school i mean you're asking me without reference to having course yeah okay so, okay, so we've so got well. like history geography exactly. you know but like we certainly and we had a world-class theater we had a world-class kind of art department you know it's exceptional but you don't you appreciate it then, but of course you don't have anything to compare it to. You. Why would you? Would you send your kid there if you had one? I think it'd be a very different school in thirty years' time. Like it's not. I think those schools are the subject of what the kind of social economics of the country is. And I think, think the reason a lot of people could go to private schools in the last twenty years is because of the nineteen eighties. Whereas now, I think there's a general consensus among amongst a lot of those private schools is that the kind of the British middle class, as it as it stands, is not going to be able to pay thirty five grand a year send their kids to these schools and also the the, the internet allows you to kind of educate yourself or to to get access to information was it your decision or was it your parents decision to send you there and do you think they took into consideration things like the internet at that point in time probably not no no no. it was a you know it was a socially good thing to do at the time you know i went to boarding school when i was eight you know it's very kind of to ramp up for that it's just kind of what you know what what was accepted by them as done, but... And was it difficult for you to then, you know, you're a photographer now, typically when people say Eton, they go politicians or, or that's the, the, the connection I draw personally. Um, was it difficult to go down a creative route after having been to such a prestigious No, not at all. I think um, it's, one of, it's one of those aspects you don't draw any specific social benefit from in terms of saying, oh, I know this person is going to help me out with this. I'm, going to join this guy's financial firm etc etc but I think that's a huge misconception people have of guys who go to these schools is that they're they're drones and they're not you know I don't personally find any 
pleasure in identifying as someone who says, I went to this school and I did this, I'm going to go on about it for the rest of my life. So it's not what a lot of people do. It's not a, there is a perception that it's kind of a leg up. But I, but I, what, what I would say is that I don't think, I don't like the idea, and I would have, I would have said this five years ago, of saying I'm rebelling against all this, I don't want to be like this, I'm, I'm moving away from this. But I, what I do think those schools give you is an insane amount of self-confidence, an idea that you can do whatever you want to do. And that's what those schools offer. And is that just purely on an intellectual basis that, like, you're... No, you're told, you're, you know, you're told that, you're, you know, the, that you, you're privileged and you're, you've got the opportunity and you've got all these things. Why would you squander that? Squander that, do you see what I mean? And that maybe applies different routes. So, you, you know, in a sense, you think you're rebelling at age 19, but you're not. <laughs> yeah. Do you see what I mean? It's, I it's, it's, it's more complex. It's, it's super interesting, that. Mm-hmm. But I guess when you've got a, a class full of other classmates who are talented and gifted, clearly and, you know, fortunate in many ways as well. To be immersed in that environment, I think, is, you know, an amazing thing. Yeah, I, I don't like the perspective people have of those schools of people who are being given everything and people that are being, of course, you've been given a hell of a lot. But I think people are generally very respectful of that, all the people that I know. I'm not talking about people who went to school in the 80s, I'm talking about the school that you know, so I went to. So the people you went to school with, did you, were there not ever, like, the, the people that their mum and dad have got a bucket full of cash and they no, know... No, not, like, not necessarily at all. I think, I think a third of people believe in our anniversary or financial support now. Well, I'm not trying to justify the... No, no, no. Like but it's, it's, not, it's not as cut and dry. It's, it's not a kind of a buy-your-way-in-school. So you've got an opportunity with this, to some degree, to change people's perceptions of it because you've been through it and very few people have. Or, yeah. you know, when I went to go to university, for example, my secondary school was never even questionable. My school was... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. 
five minutes around the corner from my house. Mm. But even my university, you know, my parents hadn't been. I was making decisions for myself. I made some terrible decisions in hindsight. Had someone been there to guide me, I would have gone somewhere else based on the perception of the credibility of a school or whatever. But um, some of these things, they are very much just what we believe rather than what they actually are. And so, you know, it's nice for you to be able to put the record straight in that sense through your own experiences. Yeah. Moving on, you've done a bunch of work for Adidas Originals recently, but in an ideal world, would you just make your own work and not touch client stuff? Um, I think I've been lucky, you know, I'm talking you know, without a vast deal of experience, but in the sense that I've tried to kind of craft a career, in a sense, at, at an early stage where people approach you to ask you to do something new or something that you want to do. And I was very fortunate with the NADAS guys in the sense they said, what, you know, what are you doing next? What do, what do you want to work on? What, do, what are you doing? And so they've been more interested in jumping on the trajectory of what I've been working on, which has been quite positive, really, because effectively it means you can monetize your next project immediately instead of, instead of uh, developing something and then pitching it or then kind of going the, artist, uh, the artistic route. They seem quite up for kind of embracing what you're doing next anyway. It doesn't mean you don't have to head it back a little bit, but it's not, um, it's not that prohibitive. Are there other clients that are like Adidas that you'd love to work for? Oh, tons. I mean, I mean, my big issue at the moment is the work that I've been doing is non-conventional in the sense I still look at the people like Kenzo and kind of IDs and all these kind of guys and Palace who are, you know, all super cool and I'd love to work with them. And it's like, it's hoping that they're looking at these different mediums and approaching those things. But it's not the same as doing kind of really interesting stills photography where they'll look back on you and you know immediately and say this is this is what suits us you're trying to pitch something towards them that kind of actually gives something to them as opposed to keeps them where they are yeah exactly so it's less it's less it's a less traditional route but these could be those kind of brands to me i'm super interested in because they're kind of you know they're cool like you can't yeah, yeah. there's no two ways about it you know? <laughs> could you name three things that most most average photographers do that you look at and go it's just a sign of amateur photography. And the reason I ask this is purely self-interest. Like, I bought a camera recently, I want to get better at photography. What would you, like, say, Rick, you should concentrate on these three things? I think it's a really interesting question that you've got, but I kind of, not to get too kind of um, cranky about it, it's like, I think if you've got a perspective as a photographer, it doesn't matter about how you take the photo. It's completely irrelevant in the sense that, you know, Someone could look at a picture of Joe Teller and say, oh, it's really amateur what they've done with the kind of composition of this, or they've got this lens layer, or they've got these things. It's not really about that at all. Do you see what I mean? Like, on a personal level, I don't like things like backlighting, but sometimes it can be good in some things. Like, I think you've asked the wrong question in that sense. Just, I, know, I think I know what you're trying to say, but it's just, if you have a perspective and an, and an understanding of something. So, for example, delving into photography, just to understand it a little bit better. Yeah. Things like shutter speed, aperture, your ISO, kind of three parts of a triangle in terms of just controlling the camera settings. Now that I understand them a little bit better, I've now got some kind of creative freedom that I can start to experiment with and try and create my own, you know, I may have an aesthetic vision that I can't actually create because I wasn't aware of those things. But the camera should be a kind of reflection of who you are at that point, do you see what I mean, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Like no. For example, when I, first, <laughs> when I first started taking pictures at live gigs, I remember I bought my first uh, SLR before, I think, I think I got it in the post, an hour before a Vaseline's gig. 
and I literally had no idea what it did. So I showed up, I got the photo pass, I showed up, and I turned all the knobs like, as fast as I could, and took about <laughs> 600 pictures, and I was just like, but those pictures reflected who I was at that time. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Is it like, you know, some kid who was super interested in photography and was doing these kind of things. And I think that transfers across many different kind of wavelengths. So say you're a guy that can only afford to buy a pinhole camera and you take those kind of pictures, like that reflects who you are and that's what's interesting about it. So do you never look at people and say, especially if they're trying to be a photographer, like they're awful, you just say that's them? As long as they've developed a style behind it and you can understand kind of where they're coming from. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? I think I understand what you're trying to say. I mean, often you do see things you're like, yeah, yeah, but you know, you know, like um, I, I don't want to take into account the general populace because most people take photographs with very little consideration for anything. It doesn't matter; they're not taking consideration. It's a reflection of who they are. You know, you could discover the photographs of a German tourist taken in 1967. Yeah, and 100 years from now, or even now, and find that the most fascinating, brilliant thing you've ever seen. You see what I mean? It's more about having the ability to have a style and do it professionally and do it again and again and again and again. That doesn't compromise that person's ability as a photographer in 1967. So you think that someone that has no understanding of photography but they're just taking photos that are genuinely them? Yeah. That's the power of it. It's not, it's not as considered as graphic design or as traditional fine art. It's, you know, it's literally a reflection of who you are at that time. What are the means of separating yourself? Is it just purely refining the style, so taking it from... Well, that's a kind of more professional, kind of economic question at that point. Well, so my, one of my questions were, was, like, you're quite um, strategic in choosing to be different with your work, or that's what I thought you, you said, there, oh, said yeah, earlier, yeah. that you were kind of playing this technology. Is that your way of capitalising on the market, just by being different? And is that a means to, its, to itself, like, being different? It's a bit of both. I try not to be different for the sake of being different. I think that's a very easy route to take. That's that's kind of quite an inexperienced kind of um, feeling when you start doing it. Is you think you take a picture. I remember I took pictures and you get some kind of light painting or something, and you'd be like, "Wow, I'm so creative." But you know, but that's a start off into it. I think that's really important to be able to do that. Is there a reason why you're based in North London? No, not really. Um, well, in, in a way, yes. I have. You know, where we are now, we're in a, we're in my well, next door to my studio. Uh, where so you know the guys that I work with sporadically are fantastic. I live around the corner. There's big spaces. You know, it's a bit of an anomaly for London. Really, we have kind of a lot of interesting people. I, I'm not tied to London, certainly. Um, are you talking about North London specifically, or I just wondered if there was a, a genuine reason why you picked this North area. London over South London. Yeah. No, not really. I mean, I kind of you know started off in Hackney, as did everyone, and then moved up here, and then have been here for three years, and. I haven't, but it could. No, I could, I could move to Peckham or anywhere else. I mean, I'm thinking about Amsterdam at the moment, but I'm not sure. I'm going to bring this one up just because we were talking about it outside, and I just thought it was fascinating, and it's completely off subject. But I thought you had a very interesting point take on it, and it was about language. And we were talking about novels and and my interpretation of them having sometimes a lot of erroneous language. Could you just explain your your take on how kind of language was used in the old, olden days and how and I know this has nothing to do with no, no, no. I'm, I'm I just, I, I appreciate it. Just, it was just a really what I I'm, thought. I was recycling knowledge there a bit. I mean, it was the idea of what we talked about. The idea of um, we started with the kind of Orwell rules of grammar, which was, you know, one of them is if you can say it in less words, say it in, say it in less words. Um, and I think that applies to people having a shared cultural 
context and understanding. So say you look at a, a Coke bottle, you say, oh, it's a bottle, it's a Coke bottle. Whereas what you would say in medieval times is you would talk about a vessel filled with black liquid. There were, I think there were many more words in that time, as I understand it, because you needed to elucidate it, because people didn't have that shared reference point. So we were talking about how maybe in the olden days someone would live within a very confined space, yeah. a 100 metre, 500 metre radius. Language had to be more complex to describe that. stuff yeah. that was outside of people's understanding. Yeah, but now we have visual cues, visual kind of metaphors. We shorten it even more now, you know, you have people, people send gifts to each other as kind of language, you know, or emoticons, you know, it's, a, it's on the same trajectory in my head. Which is why when people actually do embrace language and, and start putting it into their sentence structures, we were talking about Will Self that you were saying you don't particularly like, but the, it stands out, you know, it cuts through the noise in many ways to be uh, to overzealous with your, your words. With, with Will Self? Or just in general, when, when you hear someone that's particularly articulate that can describe something in a thought-provoking way, <clears throat> it stands out. Very, very off-topic, but I just thought, no, it was no, very, I thought it was interesting nonetheless. So, uh, second half of the interview, these are all kind of stuff that hopefully we can answer a bit quicker. So, who were your biggest influences growing up and what did you learn from them? In terms of key figures, do you mean kind of literary figures? Or? I guess what I mean is, so, um, for me it would have been, I always say, like, say George Lois or Jack Fresco, Dieter Rams, people that I looked at and was like, I really like the qualities of their work, were the photographers that you went, uh, maybe you emulated them to begin with in order to try and define your own style, was there anyone like that? I don't think I really felt like having my own uh, opinion on the kind of visual aesthetic sense until I was 17 or 18, I, I wasn't really brought up with that kind of looking at visual artists and being excited by them, to be quite honest with you, it was kind of something that I kind of discovered quite late, I was very fiction-based into that age. Okay, so, so what, there's kind of you asked me about specific kind of historical characters. Okay, so like what were the, what were the those influences? So was it um, you know classical literature or what were you reading at that time? Oh, a lot of kind of ancient, ancient Greek. Oh, you were very into ancient Greek mythology at the time. The same really? Wow. Historical kind of. I know I was really into that. It was super interesting. But that's kind of what I had access to. It was at the time when you went into, you know, I wasn't into Nirvana. I was into S Club Seven because that was what was there. You didn't have that that choice at that age as someone who grew up in the countryside or went to a boarding school to say I choose this which brings into question everything around kind of advertising towards children when you're talking about the fact that they don't have an understanding of they're being sold something at that moment in time is it it's just an ethical issue potentially that kids have no idea but yeah moving on well that's been yeah that's been going for years yeah anyway but yeah it's been going for years so it's fine yeah (laughs) Do you, do you have any routines or rituals that help you create? Uh, beer. <laughs> I do. I do quite like. I do quite like a beer in the evening. I have kind of like a big wall of paper that I pin up new paper on top of, and if I have to do a concept kind of evening, I do kind of. Um, I'll just staple new paper on a whole wall, have three or four beers, and kind of just enjoy it. Kind of just have a kind of thought process with yourself, really. But I mean, it's nice to surround yourself with people that also you can kind of talk about things with. What was the uh, biggest struggle you faced creatively and what have you done to overcome it? Uh, I think you always have peaks and troughs creatively in terms of your kind of confidence over it. Someday you'll be really confident, the next day you won't be. I think you constantly have to have, the day before you'll have this kind of huge up. And it's kind of, you know, it's almost like a drug. It's like a huge emotional up and you know because of that, maybe the next week you're going to feel a bit, a bit crap because you've had this high. And I think you always have to kind of balance these. If I have a shoot, for example, it's a huge kind of rush. Always, like even now, but 
then you've been editing for three days and you're just like, well, well, why am I even doing this? This is not why I got into this, to kind of sit at a computer and polish this work, but you have to do it because that's it's your work. So I think there's a constant, I wouldn't say there's been a specific hurdle in that sense, there was always the kind of financial problems of starting. That was very difficult, yeah. But yes, it's, because I completely resonate with that, but it's having the self-awareness to know that you're in that phase at that moment in time. Yeah, well, you, you, you've got no, I don't know what I'm doing in two weeks, for example, and that's been the same for, for years, but adapting to that kind of understanding, do you see what I mean, is, is surprisingly difficult, but once you get into that, it's fine. How do you think the industry will change in the next 10 years? Uh, which industry? Photography industry. Uh, so the kind of visual media industry that you're talking about. Sure, yeah. Um, but it's all, you know, I think a lot of the old boys are finding it a bit difficult at the moment, to be quite honest with you. And a lot of the guys who are trying to kind of enter the industry, which we talked about before, are kind of trying to replicate a certain style. Um, I think there's a huge emphasis on uniqueness in a crowded market, and that applies to everything from models to photographers to filmmakers. There's so much noise in terms of the content people are looking at on the internet, the average person on Facebook, on Instagram, etc. There's a huge pressure to create things that are new and original and exciting. It doesn't matter if they're lo-fi or polished or etc. It just it has to be exciting. It's not like TV where you know that, that person between in these four minutes is going to be watching your advert. And it just has to be palatable for them to sit through. You have to create something that people choose to engage with or share. I mean, that's the real win if you can get them to share it to someone else. But you have to be creating media that is exciting. You can't rely on the on the viewer anymore to be a kind of passive vessel for a boring advert about Catholic. You talk about the old boys. Like one person that, you know, I don't know particularly many names of photography, but Nick Knight's created Show Studio, right? Yeah. And they do quite a lot of good online content. Is he one of the few figures? Nick Knight's not an old boy. I mean... <laughs> No, how old is he? Well, no, it's, well, you know what I mean. He's, Nick Knight was an innovator from the very beginning, and he's still an innovator. Right. I think he's obsessed with being an innovator. It's almost ridiculous in terms of if you think you've got a new concept, then you look at Nick Knight's done it in 2001. It's, it's <laughs> embarrassing. And Nick Knight's a, yeah, he's a superstar. That's, that's what he does. Uh, so what book or learning resource uh, has had the biggest impact on you and why? Is there anything you ever recommend to people? No, not really, to be honest with you. I kind of approach things in terms of if I need to learn a new skill, I'm, I'm quite into the YouTube tutorial. And is it, a cho- is it a choice you have to not consume much in the way of books and stuff? No, it's a constant source of embarrassment. I do read every now and then, but I have to go away to do it. I find when, when you're plugged into the kind of your work and the industry and what you're doing, it's very hard to say, right, I'm going to read, I'm going to step out of that, I'm going to take a kind of, yeah, my phone's on all night. My, my phone goes off at two in the morning, I will answer it. Like it's just one of those things. It's it's not necessary, but you're plugged in. When you go away, you leave that. I start reading again, and it's it's fantastic. Well, it's, yeah, uh, so it's a good reflection of what it's like here. Yeah, it's just, overwhelming. It's a big space. It's something that I'd really like to work on. Do you know, what I mean, it's not it's not a choice. It's not a kind of principle. It's just a more of a favorite website. Gift dance party. Gift dance party. Okay. <laughs> just just checking. I mean, nowness is pretty impressive. Now this is good. I think it's got a bit diluted actually lately. I think it's got a lot of stuff on it. I mean, I'm very grateful for them featuring my stuff. That's really fantastic of them. But no, in terms of what I look at, in terms of those websites, it's got very confusing now because I think people all plug into the same websites now. You know, you've got your IDs, you've got your dates, you've got this and that, and the the content they started producing is quite clickbaity actually. Well, they're in competitive market right now. Yeah, and that's those. what they do. I'm not really as interested in it as much anymore. I mean, good is good, good or boom. 
Okay, I, I've not actually checked it out. So I've been with like seven O's, so good. Um, favorite movie or documentary? Changes every day. That's no, sorry, I can't. Name drop couple. Pacific Rim. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I don't know, it's hard to join with a really wanky one, but I've got those wanky ones now, right? <laughs> I'll probably watch about a film a day. So, well, the guy yesterday it. said, um, oh God, what was it? The Big Lebowski. So, they're all fantastic. Literally, I've seen everything. Like, I mean, this is my concern. I don't read as much books because I've literally watched everything. Right. <laughs> and there's so many brilliant ones, and I absolutely love a lot of them, but it's so. You'll have to be the favourite one, it's just. Is there a director that you like? Yes. Can't remember their name. No. Alright, well that's fine, we'll stick in the show notes. What event would you recommend people go to? Anything based in London that you go to that you find quite enjoyable? Well, next door right now we have um, Open Jack, which is when all the weird music tech heads get together to kind of project music through lights and Open Jack. And can people Google that and find it? Cool. Someone says, come here and you go. I like the idea of things being a kind of Surprise when you get there. It's not like a planned kind of. It feels like more of a discovery. Sure. When you kind of walk into something, which is what nice about living around here, because you kind of you walk into a, a room down the road and someone's doing something genuinely fascinating. Yeah. And you don't get that everywhere. Uh, quick fire questions. Favorite brand? Adidas. 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 <laughs> Plug. <laughs> um, um, no, no, it's absolute now because I want yeah, anyway. John. Yeah. <laughs> John Doe. An old John John Doe related subject. No, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you do for fun outside of work? Well, that's a big issue at the moment, actually, because when you try and make your work your hobby, that's the dream, isn't it? But it's not. It turns out it's not. You need. I'm genuinely on search for a new hobby. So if anyone can recommend a new hobby, I would gladly accept that. I have ambitions towards the climbing wall and physical exercise. But they have yet to uh, materialise. But if anyone has any ideas, are you uh, friends with Connor? Connor Castle? I fucking am as well. I mean, I am as well. <laughs> yeah, Connor's worth speaking to. Then, if if your ambition is uh, climbing, yeah. no, but no, genuinely, like when you when you do work on what you really enjoy, you do get to the point where actually you do realise you need you do need some space from that. Yeah, otherwise you do go a bit crazy. But it takes a few years to get to that point, actually. So it yeah, to understand. I mean, it's been, what, three or four years for me, and I'm taking some time out at the end of the year to take a step back from it and just go, where do I want to take this? Because I know that I enjoy it, but when you're immersed in it day in, day out, and client problems and all the rest of it, I get that. And it is a passion, but it's like, how do you keep that passion going? Well, it applies to everything. Like, I genuinely thought, like, what suckers to, like, everyone else who went into, kind of, office industries and after four years, you know, said, oh, I'm going to need to reevaluate my life. And it turns out, actually, it's, there's not much difference in terms of whatever you go into. I think you still have that same feeling. Like, maybe not to the same extent because you do have a bit more self-fulfillment uh, and empowerment in what you do. But you still come to those same questions, I think, after a few years in the job. And I didn't, I didn't think I would, but... Do. And do you think that's anything to the city? Like I find it's a lot of the time to do with lifestyle more than work as well. I suppose you're you're an independent creative, so your lifestyle. Well, a bit out of the city kind of. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I do find it a bit repetitive. For example, you know, it's a weekend. You go into Hackney, you go see some people, go to the pub, etc. Maybe you go to a party, and then you repeat that every weekend. I find the repetitive nature of that very uh, diminishing. I'm interested. If you could work yeah. with Cara Delevingne, would you? Yeah, of course I would. I'd be interested. I'd be really interested to see what she's like. To be quite honest with you, I think she 
she's, I've heard a lot of bad things, I've heard a lot of good things. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's someone that you would never turn down the opportunity to work with, why would you? On the subject of kind of models, because they do kind of get chosen, right? Do you know anything about the process? Like, are there individuals that kind of... What, casting directors, yeah. But, I mean, there's casting directors, but are there certain key figures in the industry, be it uh, Anna Winter or a famous fashion designer, that are the, the people that people look to to decide, like... The tastemakers. The tastemakers, yeah. I think you're looking at a very... You're almost attempting to simplify a very complicated process. Do you see what I mean? So you believe it's a process rather than serendipity? Well, it's a... Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, Cara Delevingne, in my opinion, this is a personal opinion, was a kind of almost a post-recession kind of fantasy. Do you know what I mean? She was the kind of the rich, privileged, attractive, ballsy kind of fantasy that people didn't have. Do you see what I mean? Like, her privilege counted for her. You know, she was fascinating and exciting and she was a kind of break from reality of what people wanted to achieve because of that. Because um, wasn't... Kate Moss, the opposite of that, wasn't she, in, to some degree, wasn't, did she come from a relatively... Yeah, she was very much a more humble... Humble beginnings. Humble background. Whereas Cara came from a well-off well family, did she? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, she's rich as hell. I'm not saying it's been a need to reflect on where they've come from in that sense, but, you know, her kind of, she was a very self-confident kind of, what is. But I think that's true. I think that people look on the internet and see these people that fly around the world and do... It's a fantasy. You're, you're yeah. buying into a fantasy. You're looking at all these fantastical pictures, and if you, you know, you go to a shoot with, any, with, with you know, with any of these people, you realise that half the time it's in a, you know, a crappy old railway option shortage, and you're creating this kind of wonderland, uh, you know, of things that people globally, and you don't realise what what the reach of some of these things are, what people are looking at, and kind of buying into this fantasy that you're actually, or other people also are creating. I think it's amazing that if you're in the creative industry, that day when you walk onto a set with someone that is relatively famous and that you've got a whole preconception about them prior to that point, and then you're the person... Well, they're pros. A lot of them got people, you know, a lot of the celebrities that come on set for any shoot, a lot of them are prima donnas and a lot of them are, you know... But they're kind, they're kind of playing up to the idea of what celebrity is in their own sense. Yeah, it depends on self-aware, though. I think it depends a lot on age, for example. Like some of the, I think some of the young, we were discussing earlier, kind of footballers who've made it big, young, they're thrown into this, do you see what I mean? And it's not... Because, I mean, talking on that, so, as I say, I went to this Adidas event the other day and there was two young guys there who had just been signed by, like, Chelsea, 17-year-old kids, being interviewed and they clearly had no star quality at all. They were as humdrum as any normal kid. But then they soon realise that they're going to get immersed into this world where people will create, a fan, as you say, a fantasy, a brand, a, an image of what they are, and people will start to buy into that stuff. And I find it really fascinating when you're behind the scenes to see how things are created, because I think it gives you the, the understanding of not being sold into these, the images that we see. But at the same time, it's almost unavoidable, even when you're the ones who are creating the image, to not be... Uh, in some way envious of, the, of that vision or to have it as an aspirational quality be it your look or the levels of success the financials or whatever it may be do you see where I'm coming from with that? Or? Oh 100% yeah it's such a wider discussion when you start talking about that it's all you know kind of reminds me of that old um, maybe a bit too much trivia but like the old kind of Diane Arbus picture kind of having a car she had a picture of a castle and then you see around the back and there's a scaffolding behind it's one of those weird things. If you 
once you start working within it, you really understand it's it's all constructed. We've gone completely off script with you, Ed. Of and, course. Uh, yeah. I'm not very good at answering the obvious questions. Let's uh, let's have a bit of a send off. So, uh, what projects have you got on right now, and where's the best places for people to reach you? Currently, I'm working on several projects. One of which is uh, I've been doing a lot of interactive uh, installations. So you're kind of taking. I'm trying to do an exhibition where you're taking traditional motion photography, not necessarily just 3D or bullet time, but kind of uh, 2D footage, and you're then controlling the people within the pictures. So we're linking motion sensors to that, um, which is looking super interesting at the moment. We're doing one which is, we're trying to turn that motion aspect into sculpture, in the sense that we've ordered loads of, uh, well, I've just been experimenting with a few prototypes with uh, uh, layers and layers of perspex, which are then lit by DMX lighting, so the light changes in between each frame, so you create a kind of installation in a purely physical sense, so there's no projection, there's no kind of lighting beyond the kind of object itself, so it's trying to turn motion work into sculpture in that sense, which is kind of purely a kind of frivolous... So is there, is there anywhere where people will be able to see these experiments? Uh, no, I mean, they, my Instagram perhaps, I kind of put bits and bobs, but... Um, which is at Evan Fraser. Um, but no, I'm I'm very accessible. I'm not I'm not I'm not important enough. So to Twitter be, uh, is it all the same handle or anything? Twitter. I'm I'm not important enough to be non accessible. Non accessible. No. <laughs> soon, Ed. Soon. My, my email is my email is fully accessible. From, from, from the uh, the image that you portray, the the castle, so to say, you seem to me to be on the precipice of breaking through in terms of photography. Whether it's scaffolding behind the scenes, I don't know, but. It feels that way, Ed. You're doing stuff at Adidas. You've amassed quite a big following on Instagram. And uh, yeah, so I recommend people check out Ed's stuff. You're very modest. I bet you have some interesting ideas. And final question. This is another deep one, so hopefully you've got something for me. Uh, if you could give the world one piece of meaningful advice to help them live a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? This is a purely personal and kind of, you know, from a, almost a position of privilege in a sense, it's... I don't see any other any alternative in what you do is to try and do something which is unique. I think that's the only way you make your mark on what you do, is to do something that you think is purely self-determined, which it's probably not, realistically, kind of philosophically speaking. But at the same time, giving yourself that kind of freedom and that feeling that you can do anything because you're doing something innovative and new, I think, is what gets you up in the morning. But that's from a position of someone who's been unable to do that. You know, at the end of the day, you're just a replicant of someone else, and a kind of you're a kind of human replicant. Of course, and you're, you're doing something. You're biological in a sense. You're only uh, an output of inputs. Exactly. So if you're doing something there's, new. There's, there's no such thing as true yeah. uniqueness in that sense, but you can try and identify stuff that's novel, yeah. that's new. Content. You can still be a brilliant. You know, it's not saying someone who does classical piano is not a brilliant artist because they're expressing something within a different medium. But just on a personal level, it, it's nice to create a new medium or to try and do that. Though it's not, it's got a pitfall. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for um, listening to the interview, everyone, and thank you, Ed, for um, giving us some great yeah, insights into what you do and the industry. And uh, yeah, hopefully, some people can take some some uh, good things away from this. So, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Bye, everyone. Cheers. Hey folks, just wanted to say thank you for listening. If there's anything from the show that you wanted to delve into in more depth, you can do so over at the show notes, which you'll find at rickyrichards.com.
While you're there, if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, you can now do so via iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. If anyone is feeling particularly generous, I appreciate every single review left on iTunes. It does me the world of favours and helps me to attract more notable guests to the show. Lastly, if you'd like episodes directly into your inbox, you can do so via the mailing list, which you will find on every page on my website, which I will repeat is rickyrichards.com. Thank you for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. Have a great day wherever you are in the world. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 